Welcome, one and all, to the Cool Worlds Podcast with me, your host, David Kipping. This week is my great pleasure to be joined by René Kloschak, who is a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the Dunlap Institute, which is attached to the University of Toronto up there in Canada. So actually, René and I kind of got to know each other for the first time during about eight years ago when we were both in the process of applying for faculty jobs. And, you know, when you're on the job market at the same time as your colleagues, you get to know each other. And, you know, Renee's name was a popping up all over the place. I knew she was like this superstar figure that was going to be very competitive for many of the same jobs that I was applying to. So, you know, we kind of all are, uh, you know, keeping arms distance to each other, but also have a lot of respect for one another. And I remember um, when she moved to Toronto, she'd accepted a position there. And I was considering actually an offer at Toronto. And uh, I kind of had some interactions with her to try and find out what she was thinking about um, what the opportunities would be like there. So, you know, it was, you know, toss of the coin. I could have actually ended up at Toronto working with Renee. And she would have been a wonderful colleague to have had. So that was my first interaction to get to know her and become very impressed with her work. So Renee is working on questions that span the structure and the nature of the universe, the biggest questions you could possibly ask. She focuses on things like type 1a supernovae, looking at the cosmic microwave background, and also baryonic acoustic oscillations. So these are all kind of fundamental probes telling us something about the nature of this universe that we live in. She's also an excellent science communicator. She's a senior TED fellow. She has a wonderful TED talk that I'll link to in the description notes. And she's also a Sloan research fellow. So her research and her outreach have been celebrated, which is rare, right? It's really hard to do both those things extremely well. So in today's conversation, we get into just a small part of her work really in the time we have. So maybe we'll have her back in the future. But in this conversation, we get into understanding not just what do we know about dark energy, dark matter, could there potentially be axions out there, those kind of interesting big meaty questions, but also the how, how do we learn about the nature of the universe? So please do enjoy this conversation. Renee, I am so pleased to have you here because you are one of the world's experts in cosmology and understanding the nature and evolution of our universe. You're also an incredible science communicator. I want to say I've really enjoyed so much of your stuff online, your TED Talks, your, your YouTube videos I've seen, your podcasts. They're all great. So That's so kind. Definitely check out, <laughs> Renee, if you've not seen Renee out there before. Today, um, I wanted to kind of walk through some of the projects you've been involved in. And one of the ones that I think that you cut your teeth on was either ACT or ACT. <laughs> We're just sort of debating how do, exactly do you say it, but it's the Atacama Cosmology Telescope, which is observing the cosmic microwave background. And I guess my question is, as a you know someone naive looking into this from the outside, you might think, well, you know, we've had all these missions like WMAP, and before that there was COBE, and then most recently Planck. These beautiful all sky images where you know if you if you ever seen a cmb image it's probably one of those images but you are also measuring the cmb with act in a different way and you're learning different information how does it work what is it learning and why is it so exciting 
it's great. I love all of these questions. <laughs> so um, it's really, uh, in terms of the experiments, it's really a, a sense of two things, really, is you have a competition between noise, so how um, sort of sensitive are you over the sky, and then resolution. So what is the smallest thing that you can see and resolve? And so WMAP, for example, um, had a much worse resolution than something like ACT. Mm -hmm. They could, um, in terms of size of things you could see, it sort of stopped at a certain scale. Now, the thing with ACT is we have bigger telescopes. And if you have something that's bigger, you can actually see something. We can resolve something on the sky that's smaller. In fact, we have a telescope which you can think of as a large aperture telescope, a big, big dish that gives you a small, uh, very fine resolution. Um, the other thing that we do uh, from the ground is we can actually continually update our detectors. So I should actually say very sadly, ACT is now referred to in the past tense because we actually took mm. it down and it, like last year, which is really, yeah. really sad, yeah. um, to make room for the new telescopes, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But um, because we could go to the site every season, we could also then, um, as we made our sensitivity of our detectors better, so basically the instruments that are measuring that signal and measuring these tiny fluctuations in the light um, temperature and its polarization, every time you really made those better, you could upgrade the telescope, which you can't do from space. Mm -hmm. So you send something into, uh, into space and then you're sort of stuck with whatever you put there. Yeah. Um, and so that allowed us to add detectors, add frequencies. Um, one of the things about the light that we see from the sky in microwaves is if you actually measure it in a bunch of different filters, kind of like if you had, you know, rose colored glasses on, so you have different filters, you can see emission from different things. Mm. And the you can actually sort of tell the difference between one kind of galaxy and another kind of cluster, if you have this multi frequency information. And so with ACT, we could progressively add more um, frequencies and add more filters and build up that picture of the sky that we that other folks didn't do from space. So you got the you got this greater resolution, um, which is thanks to the larger aperture, ultimately. And what kind of structures can you resolve then that were not possible to resolve previously? So one of the things that we see is we can actually measure um, a lot of the light from clusters of galaxies. So there are clusters of galaxies out there and they are filled with this hot electron gas, basically hot gas. And that gas has a very um, characteristic signature on this microwave light. At a certain frequency, it makes the galaxy look like a little bit of a cold spot. And then another frequency, it makes it look like a little bit of a hot spot mm -hmm. and so at the same part of the sky you see in different frequencies very different things and that means oh I've actually found one of these clusters and the resolution of act for cluster scale objects was really incredible and so we could pick up thousands and thousands more clusters than um, other telescopes. So is this through the Sonia Vizaldovich exactly. effect? Exactly yeah it's called the Sonia Vizaldovich named after two Russian scientists Sonia and Zaldovich. Okay now I think I've heard, you know, as an astronomer, we hear this term so often. There'll be a colloquium, and there'll be a cosmologist being like, "We use this effect to measure this," and uh, I think people working you know, in exoplanets were like, "Hold on, what what is that effect again?" And I think it's it's such a powerful probe of the universe. I think it is just worth if if you think it's possible to explain simply um, how how does that effect work and why is it revealing structure like this? How how does that how is it giving yeah, us that information? So, so when we talk about uh, light from the CMB and light in general, one of the things that we do is we measure its um, kind of spectrum. Mm -hmm. And uh, Planck, the Planck law tells you that you know I can uh, the the 
kind of spectrum that I would see really is dependent on the temperature of the object. Great. So the CMB has this beautiful Planck spectrum, very smooth. So what happens is these CMB photons are moving from the surface of lost scattering. I should say we have a lot of amazing cosmological terms like yeah. the surface of lost scattering, which <laughs> is really poetic. But so the CMB photons are moving and they encounter this this hot gas, basically just a bunch of electrons in this cluster of galaxies. And I should say there are many galaxies. So this is mm -hmm. bigger than you would think of if you just think of our Milky Way. So it encounters this gas. And why is the gas hot around the galaxies? The gas is hot partly because of the gravitational pressure of the system. Mm -hmm. And so everything around it is sort of pressurizing and heating up the gas. Okay. And then the CMB photon encounters an electron and it scatters, it sort of it bumps into the electron and it changes the energy of the photon. Mm -hmm. As it changes the energy, now imagine if we had this spectrum of light. I wonder if we can like draw this with everybody's eyes. We can show a graphic. Yeah. yeah. So now the energy of this particular photon has gone from this energy to higher, mm -hmm. which means that the, it actually distorts the spectrum for that in that particular region of the sky. The spectrum, a lot of photons are moved to higher energies, which means if you looked at the frequency that used to be that energy, there are like fewer photons there mm. of that frequency, which is why at lower frequencies, these, these clusters look like cold spots because all the, all the photons that were normally at that energy are actually a higher energy. And so at the higher frequency, it looks like a hotspot. And that's why this, this distortion to the spectrum is really characteristic of hot electrons, basically. Uh, so it's very counterintuitive then, yeah. So the cold spots that you see are actually more energetic. Well, it's the, that the, the photons have actually moved to a different part of the spectrum. Right. There are, there's an excess of photons at a higher um, okay. energy and a, and a decrement at lower energies. And that's all like a essentially a, a scattering, so like a thermal effect. Yeah. Um, is there anything about the motion of yeah, these galaxies so we can extract? Exactly. So we have we talk about the thermal and the kinetic or kinematic, depending on if you're American or British, mm -hmm. uh, sunyaev zeldovich effect. So the thermal is the basic um, effect, and it's the, the biggest signal that we get. But now imagine that the cluster of galaxies is moving, which we think clusters of galaxies would move, particularly if there's a cluster, you know, two near each other or galaxies near each other, they might fall mm. towards each other. So imagine this cluster is moving. So now the um, the electron gas is also moving. And so if the photon gets one bump, essentially of a change of energy because of the temperature, it also gets another nudge um, in terms of the velocity. Mm. We're only really sensitive to that effect for clusters that are moving towards or away from us. Mm -hmm. You can imagine if two things are moving this way, we won't really be able to pick up that signal, but it's another little boost um, that we can get. And that's a little bit harder to disentangle um, because it doesn't have exactly the same frequency dependence. It's actually harder to, to reconstruct. But a lot of my colleagues, in fact, some of the ones here at Columbia, uh, use a lot of sophisticated techniques to kind of reconstruct that effect, the kinetic, kinetic or kinematic Sunyaev-Zeldovich effect. So that sounds very similar to like a, a simple redshift blue shift that we might think of with a with yeah, object that's moving exactly, or receiving away exactly, from us. Exactly, velocity dependent effect, yeah. Okay, yeah. and so with these two probes, um, I mean, are, are those the only two probes that you're primarily using in, in these kind of measurements or are there, is there something else as well that's being extracted from these spectra? So we also, uh, so, you know, with ACT, we can also measure a lot about um, dusty galaxies as well. So these are just galaxies quite far away that are emitting, say, in the infrared. So they're mm -hmm. full of dust. So any light inside is being re-emitted at um, a sort of millimeter or microwave uh, frequencies. And so we actually can pick up a bunch of these. And what's really cool is that these galaxies are telling you about, they're sort of sitting in the dark matter potential, mm. but we can now probe that pretty high out. Now there are 
Um, some, some of them we can resolve, some of them are just diffuse leftover emission that we can see, but we can do a lot of, of work trying to understand both the populations of these galaxies and also what they tell us about the dark matter that they're sitting in, because then we can kind of reconstruct what is happening to the photons because of the dark matter they're sitting in. So there's a lot of cool science that you can't get to unless you have that resolution. Otherwise, mm. you would sort of just wash out all of that light over a much larger area on the sky. So we have maps of the dark matter, essentially, we from can, these yeah, measurements. Yes. That's so one cool. of the cool things that um, some of my colleagues um, in ACT have done is uh, you can you can measure. So another thing, cooler thing that happens to the CMB light is as it's passing through a dark matter clump, basically the light gets a little bit bent, mm -hmm. kind of like if you have to walk in a crowd, you have to sort of dodge people. Okay, so it's getting a tiny bit bent. Its path is getting a little bit bent. And of course, this is happening very many times over the whole history of where this photon is coming to us. But the, but the deflections are very small. Mm. And so we're sensitive to this integrated effect. Now, if you build cool statistical operators, statistical methods, you can kind of sort of backwards propagate and figure out what is the dark matter distribution, integrated of course, but what is the dark matter distribution that's causing all of those little deflections. And then amazing thing, so we call that a reconstruction. So we're like reconstructing what we think the dark matter looked like that would have made those moving, you know, those deflections. And if you take a map of the emission we get from at a frequency we think is mainly from those dusty sources and you just spatially compare it to the dark matter distribution, they mm. match up incredibly. Mm. There's a beautiful image I can show you from one of our papers. And so that tells us like, oh, this is great. These galaxies are actually sitting in the same dark matter potential wells that is causing the deflections. It's really quite mm. beautiful. And that, so they're coupled, we might say, to each other. Absolutely. And that's maybe surprising because we normally think of dark matter as being um, very weakly interacting with with the, with things except for through gravity and even then it seems like it's a it's this kind of fluffy thing that doesn't quite stick to normal matter in the in the way that uh, baryons do so yeah so when i said they're coupled um they really are only in this case it is only gravitational right so mm -hmm. the so uh we because dark matter isn't shining right it is weakly interacting with light we sort of need to do the sleuthing because the gravitational effect is the biggest um, that it has on anything else. And so when I say they're correlated, I really mean they're spatially correlated so that we can say, well, if I see dark matter, if I see this galaxy there and I can infer this lensing signal, this dark matter map, um, I am connecting them. But we mm. don't think that the, the um, infrared galaxies are really doing anything else than sitting in the same place as the dark matter because dark matter is, is gravitationally attracted to these things around it. Okay. What do we know about this structure? So we've, if we've learned, we're getting the, the CZ effect. Can I shorten it to that? <laughs> just, just, just to save time. Sonia Zeldovich, it's kind of a mouthful, right? If we use the CZ effect to kind of, that's tracing the gas mostly, right? Or uh, ionized gas. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The SZ effect is tra tra uh, tracing the gas. And in fact, um, depending on which one you look at, it's either tracing the density or the pressure. But yes, it's okay. basically tracing the gas. And then you're using this weak lensing effect, which is the uh, light from distant backgrounds, which are, are warping their way through the universe. And those little warps are telling you about the invisible dark matter that we can't see. You see they're coupled to each other. Um, at least in, in a gravitational sense. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be careful with that because yeah, I know yeah. you're like, hold on. I'm like, hold <laughs> yeah, on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but 
uh, these in these galaxy clusters, we, we, I mean, when we look at a picture of the Milky Way, if you've ever seen a picture of the Milky Way and you think about the dark matter halo around it, if mm. you've seen that, normally it's just a big sphere, right? It's just mm -hmm. this giant sphere, this ball that's, that's much, much larger than the Milky Way. And the, the Milky Way sits within that like a seed, like a nucleus in the middle. And in a cluster, do we think um, the dark matter halos truly look like that? Or do they, you might imagine they all kind of just blur into each other and you get this kind of, uh, this homogeny almost, where there's no real distinction between one dark matter halo and a new dark matter halo. What do the shapes of these galaxy clusters and the, and the interaction with their halos look like? Uh, that's great. There's a ton of stuff to unpack there. So yeah. I'll start. I'll start just first with the shape. So um, at at the resolution of ACT, the even the big galaxy cluster is still not large, right? It's sort of like. Um, we talk about an, an one and a half arc minutes on the sky, so not huge. Whereas if you think about something like Hubble, it has a much finer resolution. So I should say that some folks um, within ACT, I should actually be saying everybody's names because there's so many amazing people, mm. but I'll give you the list of all these people. Um, some folks at, at, at Rutgers here, um, they then add additional observations from either X-ray observations and optical observations all at the same patch of the sky okay. to say what, what can we actually see about the cluster and the, the galaxies. But to get to your other point about just the distribution of, um, of dark matter, it's always um, a case of scale. So if you're interested in, um, you know, you have to choose your poison. If you're interested in the largest scales, um, you use one kind of measurement. If you're interested in different scales, you use different ones. So at mm. um, least with the measurements that we've made so far, we're not necessarily at an individual cluster level resolving individual halos and that kind of structure. However, we can start asking questions about, well, if I take all the clusters that I find, so different places on the sky, and then instead of thinking them of them as special individual snowflakes, I say, I don't care about the individual properties. I just want to know statistically, do they sort of behave in a similar way? And we use this statistical technique called stacking, where I basically throw away your positional information and I make a little cutout on the map of this cluster. And then I just add sort of stack all of these observations together. All the clusters together. All the clusters together, okay. um, Or the map at the position of those clusters. And then we can say, well, do we actually see um, any uh, preference for if, uh, you know, if there's a shape to the gas kind of flowing in or out of the cluster, is there a shape to the density distribution? And so this is actually work that one of my students, she's not my student anymore, she's now a wonderful postdoc in Barcelona, mm -hmm. um, uh, Martin Larkin has done where uh, you stack in a preferentially oriented way to, to think of, to see, is there any asymmetry in the distribution of gas that's flowing mm. in these clusters? And you can ask those questions, but at an individual level per cluster, you really then have to go to a higher resolution um, instrument to actually resolve that um, right. for us, yeah. So it's like, a, this is like an average effect. The, yeah, yeah. If you average all the galaxies close together, this is typically what you'd expect to see. Exactly. That's how we should interpret exactly. that. Exactly. Uh, yeah, exactly. So I, I like to tell people that, you know, as it, my kind of cosmology sort of survey science, even if it's, it's like a, a statistician doesn't really care about how your day is going, but wants to know some properties, your height, whatever, you know. Mm. And so that's sort of what we're interested. We want to know overall, um, are, you know, what are the distributions like of the gas in these clusters? Um, can we understand how to better model what we call the pressure profile? So the behavior of the gas as a function of radius. You can imagine it's very hot in the center and then it decreases. Um, and and so those are the kinds of things we, we try to model using everything we can as opposed to individual objects.
Okay, and have we learned anything about or constrained uh, various models of dark matter from these observations? I mean, dark matter remains one of the most mysterious topics in all of astronomy and cosmology. I think it's something that whenever you talk to the public about science communication, it's, it's, there's always a question about dark matter, um, like black holes, like the other big topic that people always want to ask about. And um, there are lots of flavors and ideas about what dark matter might be. Is Are our current observations putting any pressure on these different ideas at this point, or, or is, are all bets still kind of on the table? So dark matter, you're right, very mysterious. And we we still have this tension. So dark matter is you know, responsible for the clumping of stuff in the universe. And we say that it's weakly interacting or collisionless. You might hear people say a lot, which sort of means the same thing. But one of the things that we are, are trying to test and understand is um, it doesn't seem to quite solve all the problems that we have. So if you if you now jump back and you and you think of um, uh, the clustering of galaxies, so now not the CMB, but but they'll be related. They'll come mm -hmm. back. If we just think about galaxies clumping together, the clumping that we see um, doesn't completely match the the lambda CDM predictions, particularly on small scales, like some this sort of a cuspiness to the distribution of dark matter. Um, uh, in, in some galaxies. And, and lambda so, CDM is just the standard cosmological model. Yes, yeah. the standard is lambda is sort of dark energy and then CDM stands for cold dark matter, mm -hmm. so lambda CDM. So, so I'm interested in trying to ask the question, you know, because we don't really know what dark matter is, we just say cold dark matter, okay, great. Lots of people have different ideas. So you could say, what if it's this, like a weakly interacting massive particle or WIMP because we love acronyms. <laughs> so what if it's this big particle that, that doesn't really interact with light and so it's hard to uh, detect unless you smash things together like at the Large Hadron Collider. The problem with those models right now is we've smashed quite a lot of things at the Large Hadron Collider and we haven't seen any evidence for these WIMPs. So they should we should sort of start to see some excesses in, in signal from the LHC. So if you don't like, if you're worried that WIMPs may not be the answer to your cold dark matter problem, then you say, okay, can I theoretically come up with different ideas? And one of the one of my favorites is called the Axion, which is a super fun name. Mm. Um, and the basic idea is what if we had um, uh, a scalar field. Now, this sounds like a very scary term, but if you think a nice analogy I like for a scalar field is if you take a measurement of the temperature in this room at every place three-dimensionally, right, uh, up, down, left, right, um, that uh, the value of the temperature is only one number. It's all you need to know. So that's why it's called a scalar as opposed mm. to a vector. And it's a field because it has a value spatially everywhere here. And mm. so we can think of the axion as a similar type of field, but instead of um, temperature, it's this mass of this axion. Okay, mm -hmm. and so the the reason why this is slightly different from a, a massive particle is it has different predictions for what um, happens when you clump stuff together. The axion is, uh, you can think of it sort of as a, a kind of quantum, uh, it has some quantum behaviors, but on macroscopic scale. So we think of quantum behaviors normally as we zoom in really, really small and we see you know quantum physics um, operating, but the axion has a, a quantum-like suppression of structure, which means it resists uh, a kind of clustering on 
the scales of the size of galaxies, mm. which is good because if we want to detect it, we have to have a particle that can do something to the clumping of galaxies. Otherwise, we could never tell. So you mean like degeneracy pressure, like when you like uh, the Pauli exclusion principle, like is an example of like a quantum effect where things don't want to stick yeah, together. Yeah, it's actually it's actually sort of has a macroscopic de Broglie wavelength. Exactly. Okay. So it's 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 sort of resisting that uh, that clumping as opposed to being in an energy level or anything like that. But yes, exactly. So there's this de Broglie wavelength and um, so what we want to do is we take measurements of galaxies clustering and see, do we find on small scales at the scales of galaxies and, and similar that there is less clumping than we expect. Mm. And that's one of the things we're, we're working on quite a lot. It will also change because if it's changing the amount of clumping, it will also change the amount of that CMB lensing that gets you know, that happens to the CMB photons, because if there's if the if the dark matter is less clumpy, it's going to be less massive and make a less of a deflection of the mm -hmm. photons. Yeah. And so um, one of the things that I do with some of my students is we we build a model for what we think axions will do, which means writing down a bunch of equations and predicting the clump the clumping signal, the clustering signals. And then we compare to the observations that we have over and over, you know, over mm -hmm. again. And each time we get different observations, we make that comparison. Um, and unfortunately, the for, so for some kinds of mass ranges of axions, we can actually rule out, we can say, no more than a percent of the universe can be made of these axions, which is good because I I like to think I don't I'm not trying to figure out what the universe is. I'm trying to figure out what the universe isn't. Mm. And so I, I really want to rule out different models. Right. And so at some masses, the there would be way not enough clumping than what we see. And is so that you we the rule low out. mass or the high mass side? It's the sort of intermediate mass. So okay. this is the cool thing about axions. So depending on the mass of the axion, um, so because it's a scalar field it uh the dynamics of the scalar field or the way the scalar field changes as a function of its energy density changes as a function of time is dependent on the mass and we have no idea what the mass could be so uh, there's a sort of rough range which is uh, from 10 to the minus 33 electron vo volts which is a fun i'll explain that in a second to about 10 to the minus 22 electron volts um, the key thing is that um, we use electron volts when we get super, 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 super small, mm -hmm. because even a proton is massive in terms of electron volts. Mm. Um, and so these axions are ultra light, they're super, super light. And what happens is until the, so they're, they're, they're sitting around in their potential and these axion field is kind of frozen. And then the universe starts off hot and cools down. And roughly when the universe is temperature and the effective temperature of these axions so when i say temperature you can you can convert a mass into an energy and then that's how you can compare the temperature of the universe to the to the energy of this um, mm -hmm. axion when they're at a similar temperature then the axion can kind of start participating and once that happens it can start to suppress structure and one of the things that we find is if you if you wait if you have a very very light axion it will never start oscillating and then it actually looks like dark energy so mm -hmm. it's solving a different problem but the early ones um we're sort of trying to push into the regime where they look different from dark matter and we're still uncertain. We think no more than 50%, but uh, we know that there has to be some other part that isn't the axion, hmm. which is so pure axion doesn't pure work. Pure axion is, uh, is not really allowed, partly because it also messes up high redshift galaxies and the Lyman alpha uh, distribution in the universe. So 
a lot of my job is taking all these observations and sort of putting them together to try and build that bigger picture of how much axions we need and, and are allowed. Is 0% axions allowed? Uh, currently, 0% is allowed, but then you still have some problem. We, we know that there is something happening at the core. So if it's not, if there's not, if, if there's not axions, then at the cores of some galaxies, there still has to be something fuzzy. And we say that, that they're not sharp, the cores of galaxies, the insides mm. of galaxies are not sharp, they're sort of fuzzy. And so if it isn't axions, it's something else, but you can, you can get away with it with a small fraction. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, just to recap then, the axions there, is it, is it easy, is it okay to think of them as like giant particles almost? Um, that the, the, if the wavelength corresponds to sort of a, maybe it's not the right word, but a, a kind of a size of the particle, these things are a very, very long wavelengths of order of, what are we talking? How, how, what would be the physical wavelength of an axion? Uh, depending on the mass, but it could be sort of kiloparsec scale. Well, like, okay. Yeah. So From, they're, yeah. So they're truly, uh, you, it maybe makes more sense to think of them as waves. It's, it's, it makes more sense to think of them as waves. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But truly in the wave particle duality that there, there is yeah, a particle it's, it's, version of it. Yeah, it's just it's, kind of weird to think of a particle that could be many, many light years across. Yeah. It's really, it, it's, it's actually closer to think of them as something like a Higgs field. Okay. Um, because they're the scalar field in the same way. They're not the Higgs. So before people get stressed, it's not the same, but if you can have that in your mind as a sort of, uh, a field that has potentially has a mass, that's a, that's a useful analogy. And then that field has a different value in, in, the, in the cores of clusters versus outside, or is it, is it the same value everywhere across the universe? Oh, the axion uh, has an expectation value. So it's, it really yeah. gets into the statistical language, right. exactly. But, but the expectation value, so you imagine the field is sort of fluctuating. What I mean by the expectation value is the average, mm -hmm. and that average can change as a function of position and time. And so some of the calculations we do do that, compute that. Um, but that expectation value then affects the dynamics and makes predictions for what you might see again in, a, in an average sense for cores of galaxies in general. Um, and that would predict the, the axion itself with this expectation value would predict that you have a smoothing um, of structure in the core. It okay. also changes, you know, other things, but yeah. So if the whole, if the whole deal is not just axions, there's something else at play, what would that something else be? So, we'll um, come to the wimps again, or would it be something else? There, yeah, I mean, there are lots of. I think a lot of people have different um, uh, ideas and approaches. One thing you could say is so. One of the things we do in cosmology is we say, "What are the the things I'm trying to solve, and what are the assumptions that I have made?" And so, if we say, "Okay, I have." Uh, clumping that's not in quite right, not quite CDM-like. What are the assumptions that I've made? One of them is this weakly interacting. So some, so some folks say, well, what if dark matter is self-interacting? What if there's a little bit of uh, a sort of self-attraction? Would mm -hmm. that change things? Again, then you start to make predictions. Well, would I see any light coming from the center of the galaxy because of this little bit of interaction? Would it change the clustering? And so any game you play as a dark matter theorist, sort of follows the same procedure. Come up with your model, come up with what we call the phenomenology, like what are the 
observables I would see, mm-hmm. and then go to a data set, whether it's the CMB, whether it's clustering of galaxies, and do that loop of does my model work, does it fit, mm-hmm. and statistically repeat. Um, and depending on who you are, maybe you hate axions, maybe you love them, maybe you like self-interacting dark matter, maybe you like WIMPs, um, you, you play that game. Some of the things that we know don't really work um, are people who just say, what if light is just behaving differently? So what if we have, you know, modified uh, uh, the, the, the mass to light connection is wrong. Those models don't really work because we have lots of pieces of evidence now from galaxy cores, from the CMB, the cosmic micro background, from the clustering of galaxies, and they all are sort of pointing in the same direction, that right. we need some dark matter, but um, there are some parts of dark matter that we don't understand. And I guess Mond would probably fall into that same category. Uh, yes, I mean Mond on its own doesn't it doesn't explain the CMB. So one this of the is reasons modified modified Newtonian gravitation. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So there is so, no dark matter. It's just we don't understand gravity in this we case. We don't. Yeah. yeah in, in in galaxies or, or um, uh, clusters, we don't understand gravity. Uh, gravity, but that doesn't get to the CMB. So that's the key thing is. Whenever someone says, oh, I don't believe in dark matter, I said, okay, that's fine, but you need to now explain multiple different observations that we have that don't know anything about each other in terms of like the telescopes, but they're giving us a consistent picture. So how does the CMB reveal dark matter just from the, again, the clustering of... Uh, in a few ways. So on one on one hand, the lensing of the CMB is the dark matter yeah. directly. That's the one we've talked about. But actually, it's really cool. So so what the cosmic microwave background is, is um, you have in the really early times in the universe, we know that dark matter and baryons or, or uh, st- other stuff like you, me, and electrons mm-hmm. and protons, they're interacting only gravitationally. But the photons, because the universe is really hot, the photons are interacting with the electrons. They're bouncing off in a similar way, not mm-hmm. the same exact same physics, but in a similar way to in the clusters. Um, and so, uh, and a similar reason why the sun is opaque, right? So these photons and electrons are bouncing off each other. As the universe cools down, they stop uh, interacting, they stop scattering. Um, and that's that's what we call the last scattering mm-hmm. surface. But the baryons have been feeling the dark matter the whole time. And so if you change the amount of dark matter you have, then this oscillation of the, the baryons coupled to the photons changes. And so you would actually expect the, the peaks of the CMB to be all higher or lower if there's more dark matter. Um, it also they, all, The peaks also change if you have more baryons. So the, the physics of the CMB is really amazing. It tells you so much about that early universe and by consequence, everything else, which is wow. great. I know the, um, the when we talk about dark matter, people often ask about dark energy as well. And dark energy is obviously something, if we look from the past going forward into the time, forward in time, it's something that we expect is increasing over time and will cause the universe to perhaps uh, continue to expand and expand. And in uh, that's an interesting topic as well, like the the fate of the universe itself. Um, and I'm curious whether dark matter plays a role in that. Does it does it just become inconsequential in the in the far future of the universe, or do we expect the proportion of baryons to dark matter to continue to change, or is it kind of locked in place now for from now until all time? That's a great question. So one of the things um, that I always forget to preface my discussions of, cosm- of cosmology, but the main unit that we talk about when we are comparing things cosmologically is we talk about an energy density. Now, the reason why we say energy density as opposed to like mass density is again, e equals mc squared. If I turn everything into energy, then I can compare 
um, light and matter. Yeah. Um, and so that's what we do. So we talk about, and when I say density, that's important because what I'm saying is really the amount of the energy divided by the volume. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that total adds up to, to one, right? If, the, if you take all the mm -hmm. volume and you divide up all the pieces. So it's not necessarily that the dark matter is going away, but the, the thing about dark energy, so super briefly, dark matter, invisible stuff that pulls on you the way you'd expect. Um, so uh, gravitationally acts the way you would expect, like normal matter, but is invisible or weakly interacting. Dark energy, it's, it's better to think of it as something so bizarre, like almost anti-gravity. It's not behaving gravitationally in the way we expect. Mm. It's also, we also can't see it, but that's way less important than this weird stuff that it's doing where instead of, you know, uh, um, kind of p falling down, if you ha it, it would, it sort of acts the other way around. Okay. And that's important because um, it has this property that as the universe gets bigger, so imagine we're in this room and imagine I, you know, let off a, a can of smoke. If I made the room twice the, the size, then the density of smoke would decrease because the volume would increase, right? Mm -hmm. The thing about the universe is as you make the universe bigger, the amount, the energy density of this dark energy stays constant, mm -hmm. which means the actual amount of the energy has to increase, right? Yeah. To keep that number the same. And so as the universe gets bigger, it's not that the dark matter necessarily goes away, it's that its ratio relative to the amount of dark energy, which more is being made um, from the vacuum, which is another thing we can talk about, that ratio changes so that yeah. it becomes you know, vanishingly small compared to all the rest of the stuff in the universe. It's almost like it's a property of space itself mm -hmm. rather than mm -hmm. of stuff in the space. It's almost a, a separate question in that sense. Yeah, and I should say, you know, there are, just as there are lots of people working in dark matter theory to try and come up with creative new ideas for what it could be, there are uh, the same, if not more, greater numbers of people doing the same thing yeah. for dark energy. Yeah. And some people say, oh, it's just the vacuum fluctuations. It's just this property of space. Some people say, well, it could be a field in the same way mm -hmm. that there's a dark matter field but, uh, with different properties. And then they do all these computations. But um, it's much harder to, to really come up with um, ways to tell the difference between these, these different ones. And, yeah. and that's the goal of a lot of, um, of telescopes being built and ongoing to try and say, could I tell the universe, could I tell the difference in the universe between a vacuum dark energy or some other field that does something else as a function of time? So to come up my question then, so the dark, the dark matter will decrease in density as the baryons will yes. over, in the future. Yes. And will the relative the relative density between them or the relative fraction between them, we expect that to be more or less the same over time or would that also, could there be changes in that ratio? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's another slight complication is that of course, um, the, the gas in the baryons is turning into, is, is being burnt up by stars. Mm. So if you go into the long future, actually a lot of that will be turned into radiation. And so the stars eventually burn out, right? I mean, they don't yeah. completely die. So, so the baryons are themselves changing, but not because of cosmology, more because of stellar evolution. And eventually you would run out of uh, fuel to make new stars mm. and then that would sort of end. But there could be, um, uh, if dark matter self-annihilates, for instance. That, there could be a similar, yeah. Then, then you'd get a decrease on that, on that side exactly. as well. yeah. Interesting. So I know you've, um, you've thought a little bit about the far future. Uh, you have a wonderful talk that I saw online of you talking about this. Um, 
and that was that was a while ago i think when i saw it was like mm -hmm. nine years ago mm -hmm. you gave that talk has how has um our understanding of the far future of the universe changed in the, in with the recent observations that we've been acquiring has it been updated or do we still more or less predict there'll be this kind of grim heat death scenario that, that we often think about and maybe you can talk about that as well sure i so i think the heat death is beautiful um <laughs> but that's i guess that's a matter of taste yeah um and so and i also must clarify when we say heat death I, people often um I, I wrote a song about the heat death of the universe which we can share in the notes um and it's actually about breaking up with somebody and the heat death which is a great combo um but anyway uh and i don't mean death by heat so i don't mean a fiery death i mean death of heat so as the universe gets bigger all this you know every everything cools down and so it's really like cold and lonely or I think you know beautiful and empty depending on who you are yeah. okay so um so one of the ways that we try to understand that is by making measurements of another parameter which so I told you we talk about energy density and I've told you previously when we talked about gas that we we care about pressure we actually care about pressure every everywhere in the universe as physicists there are not that many things you can compute one is density um, energy density and one is pressure mm. and we conveniently write the ratio of the two of those energy density and pressure and we call that w it doesn't really matter but that tells you something about the kind of stuff you have because if you have um radiation you have a certain value of the ratio of energy density to pressure and if you have say dark matter or dark energy it's something else and so one of the things for dark energy is we want to measure that W, we want to measure that equation of state, as it's called sometimes, the ratio of energy density to pressure. Um, and we want to measure it with precision because that because that is our yardstick for telling different dark energy models apart. We want to get that error as tiny as we can. And in fact, if, if it really is a vacuum energy, that's predicted to be one always. Hmm. Um, sorry, minus one always. So the equation of state will be minus one always. Uh, but if there's some novel novel dark energy model, you could imagine that there's more dark energy in the past or less in the future, and we would expect that W to change. So we want to be able to measure, Americans will say W of Z, we want to be able to measure the equation of state, the change in the ratio of energy density to pressure as a function of redshift mm -hmm. or time um, in the universe. And in order to do that, we can take all of the different probes we have that are sensitive to dark energy. So the clustering of galaxies is sensitive to dark energy. The CMB is a little bit sensitive to dark energy. You can also say um, distances in the universe will change if you make the universe, if you sort of change its its shape and size. Um, and so we can add all of those together to get, um, to, to get limits on that. We are uh, within the error bars, we are consistent with minus one. So with currently within the error bars, um, a universe that is just vacuum dark energy is completely allowed at all times at all, at all redshifts yeah so um so the, exactly so if we um if we constrain one model of the variation just says i have one value today and then some uh, uh coefficient that describes a redshift evolution those two coefficients are consistent with no redshift evolution right now but we're building telescopes to get those error bars teeny tiny and in fact um, I have, I'm going to uh, show up a plot um, in a talk tomorrow where the, the upcoming telescopes that we're building, including the Vera Rubin um, telescope, which is being built in Chile, will just blow everything out of the water in terms of observation measurements that we've had before. Wow. And will be able to tell us 
if, if there's any hint for a dark energy model that's not a cosmological constant, we'll be able to see that in the next decade, which is, hmm. which is pretty exciting. Now, it could be that the universe still is just going to tell us it's a vacuum energy, but I think that would, that would be very important to know. Um, but there's also a ton of physics you can do, even, even if it is a cosmological constant, um, you know, with all these observations. But my wow. hope is that we'll see some, some hint. Now, um, some people get the impression like, oh, cosmologists, you know, basically everything's figured out. There's nothing really new to do. You know, there's vacuum energy. You don't know what it is, but whatever. You know, it's dark matter is clumping. You don't know what it is, but that's fine. Just accept the model. But there's there is some very interesting stuff that's happening. So uh, one of the things you can do in cosmology is estimate the age of the universe, which is kind of cool. Um, and we get that in a bunch of different ways from different probes. And if we think about like one over the age, we call that the Hubble constant. Um, and what's interesting is that if you make a measurement today at low redshift, close to close to today, so using um, stars that have exploded recently, or you make a measurement uh, with a CMB, you infer the value of the Hubble constant or the age of the universe from the cosmic microwave background, you get a different number. Mm. And it's and the tension between those two numbers is getting more significant. This is the Hubble tension. This is the Hubble We've, tension. We, have, we spoke to Wendy Freeman on the podcast oh, about this amazing. a little while ago. Total expert. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing is that it, it, on on one hand you could say oh it's just low redshift high redshift tension, but one of the things we try to do with ACT is instead of everyone doing high redshift Planck the Planck satellite, mm -hmm. low redshift you know arrange Wendy's Wendy's group is doing some of that analysis. Now we want to say, well, with ACT, can we do our CMB analysis without using any Planck data? Because then we can start to test, is there a tension between the CMB people? Uh, just like at low redshift, different groups are, are presenting different things. But the interesting thing is that if you have a model of dark energy that's weird, you could try to have a universe that looks like it has a different age today or in the past. So this is where a theorist's dream, right? Mm. Because can I make a universe that is doing something strange in terms of the basically the size of the universe or the age of the universe that it's inflating or, or, or bigger or smaller relative to Lambda CDM as a function of time? It's quite hard, and a lot of people have tried that um, to make that work. One, one group um, at Johns Hopkins University are using axions, but very complicated axions with different kinds of, of uh, dynamics to see if you can do this. But that's mm. this is sort of where the interplay between theory and observation is so good. Um, and measurements from the Rubin Observatory will help us a little bit disentangle some of that because it'll give us more of these probes. Okay, I just want to, for the, for the listener who might be confused by some of the jargon, Whenever we're talking about redshift here, we really mean like looking back in time exactly. in this context. Exactly. So if something's high redshift, we mean something that's, that's really early on in the age of the universe versus something that was low redshift to be something nearby that is uh, much younger, much, uh, much more contemporaneous with our current age. Um, the, uh, you mentioned something interesting there that you said that you're trying, maybe I misheard you, but you're trying to get the measurements from ACT would be somehow independent of that of Planck, mm. which surprised me because uh, they're observing both the CMB. So if they're both observing the same thing in different ways, um, how is it that you get a fully independent measure of this Hubble value? Yeah, so what I mean by independent is that, so it's um, the experiments from ACT were on the ground. Now, mm -hmm. when you're in the ground as opposed to being in space, one subtlety is that you can't measure the whole sky. 
Mm. You can only measure all the sky I can see from Chile, right? Which is some large fraction, but not 100%. If you're in space, you can measure the whole sky, which means the very largest scales, which is the opposite of all the stuff we've been talking about with ACT, the very largest scales you can probe better with Planck compared to ACT, mm -hmm. which meant that um, some most analyses from the ground, if you want to calibrate your instrument, you calibrate it on large scales, typically will say, well, give me the Planck map, let me calibrate my data on the Planck data, and then get my answer. But then okay. you're not independent because yeah. you've actually used that, their data. You're locked into them, yeah. Exactly. But now what we've done with, with ACT is that we're measuring the polarization of the light, which Planck did, but not, not as well as we can do. And what I mean by polarization is that um, the, the we, we expect light, say, from the sun is weakly polarized. So if I put on sunglasses, I can block out some of those light. Light from the CMB, we also expect to be very weakly polarized. So if I have two detectors that are sensitive to the different polarizations, I can measure that polarization signal. Mm. With those measurements, we now can, can do well enough that we actually don't need to directly calibrate off Planck, which means that even though we're measuring the same thing, we are now able to say independently what we measure. Mm -hmm. And that means we can check for if Planck and ACT or agree with each other in terms of the value of H0, or are we closer to a low rate, you know, a, a, a nearby probe or not. Okay. Up until now, we interestingly enough have not seen attention which which then gives you a little bit more hint if two different experiments measuring H0 or inferring H0 from high redshift don't disagree with one another, then you can't just say, well, Planck, some people, you know, some people said, oh, Planck just made a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. And you can't say Planck made a mistake or, or there's something wrong with analysis if two different groups are getting the same thing and their data are very um, independently measured, mm. even though it's the same thing on the yeah, sky. Yeah, yeah, that's very powerful. Mm -hmm. And so that's obviously something to look forward to in the future with Ruben. Um, and I do want to ask you about uh, the Simons Observatory as well. But maybe uh, with Ruben, what, you know, you you said it could measure, measure W as a function of redshift much more precisely mm -hmm. than we've ever had before and potentially really test some of these models. Um, what exactly is it that Ruben will be measuring and doing that gives it that capability? Because uh, it's not it's not a millimeter telescope like like uh, ACT. ACT's measuring that very, very cold wavelength of light Whereas Ruben, previously LSST, uh, is measuring more like optical wavelengths. So how yeah. is it, it's such a completely different type of measurement. Yeah. How is it coming to bear here? Yeah, so so I actually have two two completely different sides to myself. The one is measurements of the cosmic microwave background. And the uh, my other interest is measurements of distances made by uh, uh, making measurements of type 1a supernovae. And uh, the, so the type 1a supernovae are these standardizable candles, right? So they're sort of acting like um lamp posts in the universe telling us about the distance mm -hmm. and if you measure that distance you can constrain dark energy the the key thing about ruben is that previously when someone has presented constraints on acceleration from a supernova they've actually been looking at a reasonably small part of the sky um, very deeply and making lots of measurements. Now, Ruben will scan the whole sky, almost almost the whole sky every three days. Hmm. And that's very good if you care about supernova because the way we find supernovae is I take a photo of me today and I take a photo of me yesterday and I compute the difference, right? And anything that's changed is a supernova. Obviously not me, but the sky. And so if I can scan the sky every three days, I get a, I can detect a ton of supernovae on the sky. So as, an, as a number, Ruben will detect 
um, signals from 10,000 new objects in the sky every night. So well, every night there will be 10,000 new objects that we didn't know about. Which is a novi. That's what novi means, isn't it? It's a new yeah, star. Yeah, exactly. Literally. New star. Okay. And there may, be, there may be the type 1A supernovae that I use for cosmology. There may be just stars exploding at the end of their lives. There may be asteroids. There's a ton of things they could find. Okay. But there'll be so many more just because it's able to look at the whole sky, basically, every few days, as opposed to individual patches. And with that number, so... You know, the current numbers of type 1A supernovae that we've gathered since the 90s, right, since the Nobel Prize work, um, we're sort of around 10,000 supernovae. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Rubens LSST will generate 400,000. So we're going from 10,000 to 400,000, which means if you just bend those measurements, you're going to be able to constrain that uh, that distance really, really well. And like that means square root 40 times better or something. Exactly. Yeah. And okay. so then, and because the dark energy changes, you know, are not, it's not going bin by bin, you actually can constrain these models and, and rule out weird, wacky models that, that currently are allowed. Wow. So the, or, the, or, it's truly the power of the all sky, um, ability of, of Rubin, which we've never really had until, I guess there's been, um, some ground-based surveys that have, captured portions of the sky but this would truly be unprecedented in terms of the volume of objects that you're capturing yeah exactly i mean we do have some uh, uh all sky or large sky surveys but it's a combination of the depth so we also have a massive camera so mm-hmm. the rubin camera is 5200 megapixels which is very big and the actual the actual camera is sort of a size of like a car <laughs> yeah um and that means, uh, so it can it can scan the sky fast and it's making incredible measurements. So it's that combination of things where we've never been able to go so deep over such a wide area. And supernovae are only one of a host of things we'll be able to do. But um, that's different from surveys that did either um, a slightly shallower look over the whole sky or very deep pencil beams. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the number is, is it something like one per century for the Milky Way to have a supernova? I think that's right. Yeah. So you, you've got 400,000 over 10 years. So is that right? Or 10 years? How, how long we're talking about? About 10 for, years. Yeah. Yeah. So. And that's, yeah. that's 400,000 type 1A supernovae. That's not even thinking right, of just right. the core collapse. I mean, it's it's really, if you see an, an animation where they, uh, some of my folks in Washington have predicted like what the sky will look like. And it's just sparkling. It's like we've, I've, it's really beyond anything yeah. I've, I've seen. And the cool thing about that is, so if you want to use them all, imagine using all the type 1A supernovae and only measuring this distance. So you get one measurement uh, and one sort of, one data vector, one number. But you can also start asking cool questions like, are the supernovae different in this half of the sky and this half of the sky? Because you now have access really to the whole sky. So you can start to use them in all these other creative ways mm. as a theorist that you have, you know, this data all over. We've never thought about maps of supernovae on the sky. We've thought about maps of the CMB. Mm. But now you can actually start thinking like, what? how will my analysis change when I'm just drowning in data? Yeah. So what, what do you think will happen then with the Hubble tension? What's your, if you were to peer into your crystal ball, what's your hedge? I I change on this a lot. I used to think I'm very conservative in terms of analysis. I used to think it's got to be a systematic. Mm-hmm. We it's it's such a hard measurement. I also know all the people making the measurements, and they're all incredibly, you know, precise and careful scientists. Um, and now you know the the tensions persist with different observations. I'm starting to think I don't know maybe it is some new physics that mm-hmm. we haven't really thought about that's making the clumping different as a function of all the, all the distances different as a function of time. Um, 
my my hope also just because it's exciting is that we will that it will actually be new physics and we'll learn something new yeah but the problem is like a lot of people are thinking about this and we haven't come up with anything yet so i don't want yet another cosmology problem that we don't know how to answer <laughs> <laughs> well it could be fun either way i think i'm i think the the data set that's coming online in the next 10 years is going to blow us all away and um i'm sure you can't wait to get your fingers can't into wait. that data set and start playing around um yeah we're we we've hit kind of the top of the hour so i want to i don't want to take up any more of your time because i know you have to get down to, to the cca <laughs> this afternoon but maybe you could let us know if people want to learn more about your science where can they find you sure uh they can they can find me on reneelogic.com uh, my website also um i'm on threads so at reneelogic um where there's a lot of cool scientists posting a bunch of cool things um and then if you are interested um uh, at, and you want to know you want to see a little animated cartoon version of me <laughs> if you google the death of the universe and my name it's very sad but then you can find yeah. that that ted ed video which is really fun yeah yeah i recommend that please do check it out well thank you so much Renee. this thank has been you wonderful. so much yeah that was great So that was my conversation with Renee Hloshek. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Speaking with Renee, and often when I speak to cosmologists, I'm reminded of a conversation that I had as an undergraduate student many years ago with my professors when I was studying at Cambridge University. And I remember at the time thinking, what area of physics, of astronomy, should I focus on? Because I found it all so fascinating. And especially astronomy. I think astronomy really appealed to me because of just the the vast, vast scale of it all. You know, I would I felt like I would never run out of things to study when I studied the universe. However, cosmology, the study of the nature of the universe, its shape, its properties, what's it's made out of, what's its future, its fate, its beginnings, the kind of questions Renee's been talking to us about in this episode, those are very, very different from the sort of things I actually ended up focusing most of my career on, which is, of course, studying exoplanets, almost the smallest things you can imagine studying in an astronomical sense. However, you know, what drove me to that decision was these conversations I had. And I remember a professor who I won't name, but they said to me, you know, cosmology is approaching the end. There is only so much more that we are going to discover. And it's kind of almost running out of time that we'll have a couple more big surveys and they will measure these fundamental properties like uh, omega m to like 1% precision or something. And then after that, we're kind of done. We'll just slightly refine these parameters to ever more decimal places and we won't truly move the needle anymore. But I think it's pretty clear that that prediction was wrong. And often I think back and not regret, but definitely think that advice was mis was misplaced. I still think I ended up probably in the right field for me, but I think uh, the idea that the cosmology is running out of things to discover is totally wrong when you look at all the remarkable challenges such as the Hubble tension that we touched on in this episode, the nature of what you know essentially 95% of the universe is is a huge open question how can anyone possibly claim that it's done that we've reached the end it's actually arguably just at the very beginning so hopefully that conversation gave a sense to you as to just how much there is out there still to find how we are addressing those questions and also 
What an exciting future we have ahead of ourselves with missions like the Roman telescope coming up. Euclid is now getting its first photos from the sky. And of course, the Vera Rubin that we talked about in this episode. So lots of exciting things coming up. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy this conversation and any of the other conversations we've had in the Cool Words podcast, and you would like to support what we do, this is the part for you right at the end of the episode. I didn't want to interrupt the conversation earlier, but here's the pitch for you. If you want to support us, you can head to coolworldslab.com slash support. That's coolworldslab.com slash support. That is my team's website, the Cool Words Lab. And that money doesn't really directly go into the podcast itself. What it really goes into is a pure research fund that we use at Columbia University to support my team. What that means is I have to spend less time writing research grants, proposing to federal agencies, which gives me, therefore, more time, if the group is supported that way, to be able to do all the wonderful outreach work, such as the Cool Words channel and the Cool Words podcast. So if you really want to help us out, honestly, that is the best way to do it. And hopefully you can feel good about that because your money is going directly into research. So thank you so much for your time today. And as always, stay thoughtful and stay curious, guys.